Mark's Gospel, chapter 8, as we consider the first 10 verses of this chapter together this morning. Uh, We're at that time of year when students have just wrapped up one school year. They're no doubt super excited about that for summer break. Uh, But just in a few short weeks, uh, they'll advance to the next grade. And of course, the education process is meant to be progressive, uh, with each grade building upon the other. Uh, Grade 2 builds on grade 1 and grade 3 on grade 2. And one of the hopes all along the way is that students will consistently grow, learn, and develop, and that they will master a certain set of content and ideas, and hopefully will also develop a whole host of skills and character qualities. Well, when a student is not learning and not making progress, that should be concerning, hopefully to the teacher and certainly to the parents. And so everybody begins to ask some questions. What needs to happen here? What is... What's the heart of the problem here? What's the struggle? What weaknesses should be addressed perhaps in the student? Or what provisions should be made uh, to help the child succeed? Well, as a teacher, Jesus Christ wants his students, disciples, and followers to grow that same way, progressively and steadily, and to learn and change. And any time that process stalls, it's concerning. And so I want to start by asking you here this morning, are you moving forward in your Christian life or have you stagnated? Are you just stuck? Are you maybe even going backwards? People often struggle to learn and grow and I think most of us can resonate with that. In Mark chapter 8 verses 1 to 10, uh, we're entering an account where Jesus is going to miraculously feed 4,000 people who have remained with him for three days, apparently just soaking up his teaching. And Jesus keeps putting lesson after lesson after lesson on the table for these 4,000 people and his disciples, and he wants every single one of them to learn. And perhaps we should just start by asking, who are these hungry people? I think it's interesting that unlike most of the crowds that we've seen in Mark's gospel thus far, uh, this particular crowd almost seems to be portrayed positively. They remain with Jesus for three days, hanging on to his words and hanging on uh, to his deeds. They are hungry. The majority of them were probably Gentiles. In other words, they were not Jewish. Mark chapter 7, verse 31, where we were at last time we looked at Mark's gospel, uh, last located Jesus in the region of the Decapolis, where he remains here in chapter 8. Uh, he spent, Jesus spent most of Mark chapter 1 to 7 around the Sea of Galilee, and just broadly speaking, that would have been considered Jewish territory. But in chapter 7, he began a massive excursion into Gentile territory, and what we're seeing is the Gentiles are responding. This account is crammed full of learning opportunities for you and me. Jesus has so many wonderful lessons that he wants you to learn. So let's jump in, and I just want to read uh, Mark chapter 8, verses 1 to 10 uh, at the beginning here. In those days, when again a great crowd had gathered and they had nothing to eat, he called his disciples to him and said to them, I have compassion on the crowd, because they have been with me now three days and have nothing to eat. And if I send them away hungry to their homes, they will faint on the way. And some of them have come from far away. And his disciples answered him, How can one feed these people with bread here in this desolate place? And he asked them, 
How many loaves do you have? They said, seven. And he directed the crowd to sit down on the ground. And he took the seven loaves, and having given thanks, he broke them and gave them to his disciples to set before the people. And they set them before the crowd, and they had a few small fish. And having blessed them, he said that these also should be set before them. And they ate and were satisfied. And they took up the broken pieces left over, seven baskets full, and there were about 4,000 people. And he sent them away. And immediately he got into the boat with his disciples and went to the district of Dalmanutha. This morning we're going to consider seven lessons together. We'll move somewhat rapidly through some of them and park a little longer on others. But the first lesson we want to note is that Jesus has a lesson for you about care and compassion. This theme has showed up again and again in the Gospel of Mark, but we we just looked at the first few verses. Uh, But if you look at verses 1 to 3 again, I want you to, I'll read it again and look for that theme. In those days when again a great crowd had gathered and they had nothing to eat, he called his disciples to him and said to them, I have compassion on the crowd because they have been with me now three days and have nothing to eat. And if I send them away hungry to their homes, they will faint on the way. And some of them have come from far away. Two times there, Mark mentions that the crowd had nothing to eat. Needs and desperate situations arise in life, and I'm sure that you have learned that by experience. You know that. But have you learned that in those moments that the Lord's care and compassion toward you take your past, your present, and even your future all into account In verse 2, Jesus stated, I have compassion on the crowd. And remember, this crowd most likely consists of Gentiles. One writer noted of the word compassion that's used here that in Mark, this word is not used of people for whom one would naturally feel compassion, such as friends and compatriots. But for those far removed and even offensive, like lepers in chapter 1, verse 41, revolutionaries, chapter 6, verse 34, Gentiles, chapter 8, verse 2, and we'll see in chapter 9, verse 2, even those who are demon-possessed. Jesus had compassion on the crowd, and he does on you too. Jesus cares about your yesterday, today, and tomorrow, the whole gamut. And we could start there by noting that Jesus cares about the past, He cares about all that's precipitated and created your current need. Other people may not be thinking about that, but you can probably think of a string of events that led to whatever need you're experiencing. Jesus knows what you've been through to get to this moment, to get here, so to speak. Jesus said, I have compassion because they have been with me now three days. Jesus is looking backward. Three days, and some of them, he says, have come from far away. Here's all that's led up to this moment. I see it, I know it, I'm aware, and I care. Jesus knows how you arrived at your present circumstance, and he cares about that. He knows all the grueling details, and he also cares about the present. Jesus said, I have compassion on the crowd because they have nothing to eat. Right here in this moment, these people are hungry. Jesus cares about your present moment, need, and situation. Today matters to Jesus, and he also cares about the future. Look at verse 3 again. And if I send them away, hungry to their homes, Jesus says, here's what will happen. They will faint on the way. And some of them have come from far away, implying they've got a long way to go to get home. 
Jesus is well aware that if he does not step in and act on their behalf, these people will not be able to meet the needs of tomorrow for themselves. They will faint on the way because the road ahead is too long and too hard. Jesus cares what's on the horizon for you. And what we see here with Jesus is that he sees uh, the needs of these people and he also sees your needs long before they're even a problem. Jesus is saying, if I do this, this is what will happen in the future. Jesus often meets people's needs before they ever even have them or they even personally become aware of them. Jesus has a lesson for you about care and compassion. And I just want to ask, oh, have you learned that? It means that you can rest in Jesus' care and compassion. Uh, when you wake up tomorrow morning and, and you feel that your, te- your chest is tight and you are worried and you are stressed and you are overwhelmed, you are concerned, and you find yourself in need, you can rest assured that Jesus is giving very careful attention to your situation, past, present, and future. He, he, he already knows what's happened to bring you to this moment. He cares about this moment, and he cares about tomorrow too. You can rest in his care and compassion. And along with that, you can also extend Jesus' care and compassion. Uh, maybe it's just worth asking yourself this question. Do you care about people's past experience, their current situation, and their future? Does your compassion extend towards the kind of people that Jesus' compassion extended to? Or is your compassion actually limited and localized to people that are easy for you to like or similar to you or that get things quickly? I think we can all take a a lesson from Jesus. Okay, how can I have that kind of care and compassion towards other people? Where I'm able to to listen to their past and whatever got them here and care about that and whatever's going on in their life today and actually be genuinely uh, loving and concerned about what's on the horizon for them. That's our first lesson. Second lesson, Jesus has a lesson for you about gratitude and thanksgiving. I want you to look at verses 4 to 7 again. And his disciples answered him, How can one feed these people with bread here in this desolate place? And he asked them, Well, how many loaves do you have? They said, Seven. And he directed the crowd to sit down on the ground, and he took the seven loaves, and having given thanks, he broke them and gave them to his disciples to set before the people, and they set them before the crowd. And they had a few small fish, and having blessed them, He said that these also should be set before them. What I want you to do here is give special attention not just to what Jesus does, but to the order or sequence in which he does it. Jesus is standing there or sitting in front of the crowd for all of these people to see and hear and listen to him. And as all these people have their eyes on Jesus, what does he do? Jesus gave thanks to God the Father for seven loaves of bread. Seven And then he proceeded to miraculously multiply those loaves for the people to eat and have the disciples distribute them. And after the bread, then comes the fish. And Jesus, again, he praised and thanked God the Father for a few small fish in front of these people. And then he miraculously multiplied those fish for the people to eat and have them distributed. Okay, what is Jesus doing? He's teaching you to be thankful. 
to recognize where your provision comes from and to see it's, it's God who provides for all of your needs and he meets every single one of them. The lesson here has to do with an activity. What is it? Gratitude or praise. But it also has to do with when or the timing of when you render gratitude and praise to the Lord. Many of us will gather with friends and family in just a few short months to celebrate Thanksgiving. It's hard to believe it's already kind of close. But it will probably play out like this. Hours of preparation will go into getting all this food ready and cooking it and trying to make sure that it all ends up on the table or wherever it's being served hot all at the same time. It might even be a little bit stressful and chaotic, a bit of a whirlwind. But eventually all of that food will be set out on the table. And everyone will gather around that food and they will pause. And someone will likely give thanks for the food that everyone is already looking at. And it'll be a great thing. It's wonderful when we do that, when we give thanks to God like that. And then everyone, of course, will eat until they can't eat anymore. And then they'll decide, well, maybe I could just eat a little bit more. And then there's pie and, you know, the food just keeps coming and then leftovers for a few days. It's great. But is that the sequence in this account in Mark chapter 8? I would argue, no, that's actually not the sequence at all. The food has not been spread. And 8,000 eyeballs or more are fixed on Jesus and seven little loaves of bread. And Jesus teaches these people to give thanks to God the Father for whatever it is that he is about to do. However it is that bread will be broken to them. These people don't, they don't know what's going to unfold next. They don't know what's going to happen. And that is the very time that the Lord is teaching them to lift their eyes to the heavens and express gratitude and praise to God. God is teaching praise, not just after the provision as we are so prone to do. Wow, God really took care of us and he provided. It's time to praise. Not just after the provision, but before it. Have you learned to do that? God, I don't know what tomorrow holds. I don't know how you are going to to meet my needs. I don't know how you are going to break bread, so to speak. I don't know if it will be how I want you to do it. or I mean, I certainly have an idea about that. I don't know if it will be what I expect. Or if it might even be contrary to my hopes, but I'm going to praise you now. Because I know whatever it is that you decide to do, it will be your loving, powerful compassion displayed towards me, and it will be good. Jesus has a lesson for you about gratitude and thanksgiving. Have you grasped that? Is your life characterized by gratitude and thanksgiving towards God? Not just in the easy times, but also the hard times. Today is a day for me to praise Maybe you would benefit from going home and just pausing for a little bit and, okay, I'm just going to write down a hundred things or more that I'm thankful to God for and I'm going to thank Him and I'm going to praise Him and just have an attitude of thanksgiving towards my God. Can I encourage you to start thanking God now for whatever it is that He's going to do even though it hasn't happened yet? The day to praise is not necessarily tomorrow after God does something. Yes, I mean, you certainly should. But what about today? Today is a day for gratitude. Third lesson. Jesus has a lesson for you about power 
and provision. Why don't we look at verses 4 to 7 again and just watch what Jesus does for these people. His disciples answered him, How can one feed these people with bread here in this desolate place? And he asked them, How many loaves do you have? They said, Seven. And he directed the crowd to sit on the ground, and he took the seven loaves, and having given thanks, he broke them and gave them to his disciples to set before the people. And they set them before the crowd. And they had a few small fish. And having blessed them, he said that these also should be set before them. The people obviously had a real concrete need here. And Jesus didn't ignore that need. He didn't say, hey, good luck. It's been a long three days. I'm feeling hot, sweaty, and tired, and I haven't slept. I haven't eaten, and we all just need to fend for ourselves. Why don't you head home? No. He miraculously and he powerfully meets the need of the hour. And he does it in a way that only God could do. He's demonstrating, I am God. And he powerfully meets their need. There is no limit to Jesus' compassion. There is no limit to Jesus' power. He's able to meet your need, whatever that need may be. In the very first book of the the Bible, I mean, we're only a few chapters in. Genesis 22, we read that Abraham was in a desperate situation himself. And God had told him to do something that I'm sure as a human being would have been just, this is insane. This is crazy. God called Abraham to go up on a mountain and to sacrifice his one and only son, Isaac. And Abraham obeys. He, he gets his son up there on, on the mountaintop, up on the hillside, and they've got the wood, and he's got Isaac all laid down. He takes his knife, and he's ready to sacrifice his son. And God stops him. And in that moment, God provides a ram that's caught in the thicket for Abraham to sacrifice instead. And afterwards, Abraham named that place Jehovah Jireh, which means that the Lord will provide. And that Old Testament account really ends up pointing forward to a New Testament account. When on another hillside, God provided a perfect lamb, Jesus Christ, to die as a sacrifice in our place for our sins. Jehovah Jireh, the Lord will provide. Romans 8.32 says this. It says of God that he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Uh, A few thoughts from that verse. God has powerfully provided for for your greatest need. Salvation from the eternal wrath of God through the gift of his own son, Jesus Christ. Just think with me for a moment. Do you really think that if God spared no expense in meeting your absolute greatest need, that he's going to turn around and leave you hanging on all the secondary needs of life? I mean, you wonder when when we think like that and when we doubt God's care and his power and his provision, It almost seems like after what Jesus has done, what God has done for us, that would be insulting that we would think that way. God has powerfully provided for your greatest need. Also, this verse highlights that God's power and provision is always gracious. It's always in the category of gift. In other words, God's provision, when we think about it, it being a a free gift towards us, It's always rooted in his character, not yours. Romans 8.32 says, He he 
how will he not also with him, with Jesus, graciously, or the idea of being freely, give us all things? How does God give? He, he's a grace giver. He's a, a giver who gives freely. That is the manner in which he gives, freely and undeserved, not because you're great, not because you're worthy, but because he is great and because his compassion and his power are great. He gives out of the abundance of his grace. And so Jesus has a lesson for you and I about power and provision, and we need to ask, have we grasped that? Have you grasped it? You need to learn to look to God to meet your needs. God can meet your physical needs like food, shelter. God can also meet uh, needs that are uh, complicated, like needs for wisdom. I don't know what to do right now. God can meet your need for patience and endurance and long-suffering with another person. God can meet your need for strength and endurance and stamina. God can meet your need for comfort and your wounds, for those to be bound up. But are you actually looking at him? And actu- are you actually looking towards him to meet those needs? Or at the end of the day, if you're really honest, are you ultimately looking elsewhere? Perhaps at yourself and your own resources, your own wisdom, your own hard work. If you could just be, you know, have a lot of fortitude, then you can meet that need. Or other people, your own experiences and wisdom. God wants us to learn to look to him. Jesus is in front of all these people giving praise to God because God is the one that's going to meet the need for them. And I do want to mention it. If you've come here and maybe you're kind of new to Jesus and you're not even sure you fully understand what Jesus has done for you, what God has done for you. Uh, I was getting at that a few moments ago where God sent his own son, Jesus Christ, to die on the cross for you. Why was he doing that? Well, Jesus was hanging on the cross, dying, taking all of God's wrath at that time. Why? What was the wrath for your sin and for mine? And Jesus was taking all this wrath, all this punishment for you, for me, in our place. And and he, he reaches out and offers a free gift, a provision of something free, eternal life, cleansing, forgiveness through Jesus' work on the cross. And he says, this is a gift. I want you to have it. You don't earn it. You don't attain it. All that I want you to do is take it by faith. Acknowledge and confess your sin. Acknowledge your neediness and say, Jesus, will you save and will you cleanse me? There's a fourth lesson we want to consider. Jesus has a lesson for you about satisfaction and abundance. Look at verses 8 to 10. After Jesus provides all this food, we read, And they ate and were satisfied. And they took up the broken pieces left over, seven baskets full. And there were about 4,000 people, and he sent them away. And immediately he got into the boat with his disciples and went to the district of Dalmanutha. Uh, Verses 8 and 9 really go out of their way to highlight the abundance of Christ's provision and the degree to which he met their need. Verse 8 says that they, 4,000 people, ate, and it highlights the fact that they were satisfied. Who could satisfy these people in their time of need? The disciples seem to be asking that question. Who out here in the wilderness in this desolate place where there aren't very many people could meet a need like this? Who could satisfy these people in their time of need? Only Jesus. 
and they have seven baskets full of leftovers. Maybe I could put that in perspective a bit. Baskets come in all different shapes and sizes, right? You could have uh, little baskets, the type that maybe you have on Easter, kids have for their Easter eggs. Or you could have massive baskets, like the kind of baskets that hang from hot air balloons. Basically, you have baskets, and then you have baskets. What were these? Well, we don't know for sure. But the same word for basket that's used in Mark 8 here is also used again in the book of Acts chapter 9, verse 25. And in Acts chapter 9, Paul uh, is basically running for his life. His life is in danger. And so Acts 9.25 says that his disciples took him by night and they let him down through an opening in the wall, lowering him in a basket. If you ask me, that's a substantial basket and a a big basket, a strong basket, large enough for a a full-grown man to be lowered probably a couple stories down a wall onto the ground in it. Perhaps it's the size of a large hamper. Well, after Jesus feeds these 4,000 people, there are seven large baskets now overflowing, just brimming with leftovers. It's a picture of great abundance. When it comes to Jesus providing and meeting needs, is Jesus stingy or is he generous? Is he a miser or is he a generous king? Jesus abundantly provides. Have you learned to trust him? A couple days ago, my son and I were at McDonald's with another father and his son, and uh, the other father asked his son if he could have one of his son's fries. And you know, like McDonald's fries, they're pretty great. I mean, there's a lot of things on the McDonald's menu that are not so great, but the fries are awesome. And so he asked his son, hey, could I, uh, can I have one of your fries? And his son says, sure. And he hands him a French fry that literally was like one inch long. <laughs> well, I thought it was super funny. Jesus isn't stingy like that, though, huh? When, I, when he goes to meet a need, is it, well, here you go. Here's a little fry. Jesus abundantly satisfies. And he has a lesson for you about that, about satisfaction and abundance. Have you grasped it? Do you see Jesus like that? Or do you view and see him as a, a miser who's stingy and doesn't care or probably is uninterested or doesn't even have the resources to meet the need? Lesson number five. Jesus has a lesson for you about hunger and thirst. This crowd is hungry, aren't they? And what first comes to mind to us is that they're physically hungry because that's really obvious from this text. But the reason for their physical hunger was actually their spiritual hunger. In verse 3, Jesus said that they had remained with him for three days. Basically, they had been soaking up the teaching uh, of Jesus, they had been soaking up his, his ministry, and they've remained with him for three days as he preached and as he taught and he ministered to them for 72 hours. And somewhere in there, whatever food that they have, would have brought, if they brought any at all, would have run out. And what do these people do? Well, they made a choice. They made a choice to forgo food in order to be spiritually nourished. Their bodies were hungry, but what I think is very obvious is that their souls were hungrier. And there are probably some very valuable lessons for us here about our priorities. 
You know, no matter what needs, opportunities, or matters may be in front of you and may be uh, grabbing and pulling for your time and attention, feasting on the words of Jesus need to be top priority. This is what matters. And I think most of us feel some tension there because life gets busy and you pull, you feel pulled in this direction, you feel pulled in that direction, you want to do this and you want to do that, and it, it, life just, it's busy and it's hard and it's challenging and there's never enough time. And so we say, well, I need or I want to do this or that, and it's really important, and there's just not enough time in my life or in my day. Well, I think what we see here is when you put Jesus first, he'll take care of the rest of that. Sometimes we get our priorities all out of line, and we, we wonder, well, why isn't anything here working? These people gave something up to hear Jesus. They made a choice. I'm going to give something up to hear this man, to hear his words. And at the end of the day, were these people disappointed? No, absolutely not. They were hungry and thirsty. And then we read in this text that they were satisfied. My three siblings and I begged for a dog growing up. You know how this goes, right? I mean, just kids just begging and begging and begging. And mom and dad are like, oh, this is just going to be one more thing that we have to take care of. Well, one day after all the begging, my parents finally caved. And they went to the pound and they brought home a puppy that we named Oreo. She was black and white. And, of course, we were just so excited about this little puppy bounding around the house. She was a red bloodhound Springer Spaniel mutt. Uh, the conditions were that we were, we were going to feed this dog. We were going to take care of her. We were going to walk her. We were going to do everything that a child needs to do to take care of their dog. Well, we never took that dog for a walk. That dog always walked us every single time. We had this massive leather leash, and my dad had bought, and this is probably like not politically correct anymore. Uh, we called it a choker chain. I don't know if there's a new name for that now. But this chain that went around the dog's neck, and as the leash was pulled, it would tighten. And that dog, I mean, it was so excited to walk. It didn't care about the chain. I mean, it was just full speed ahead, dragging us behind it, gagging and trying to breathe, but having the time of its life. And we would finally get Oreo home, and the very first thing Oreo would do after, after she was, uh, the leash was gone and all that, she would run over to her water bowl and just drink, 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 lap up that water from her bowl because she was thirsty. And that's really how the Christian's longing should be for the word of God. Listen to these verses. This is, these are all come from Psalm 119. This is verse 10. With my whole heart, I seek you. Let me not wander from your commandments. Verses 14 to 16. In the way of your testimonies, I delight as much as in all riches. I will meditate on your precepts and fix my eyes on your ways. I will delight in your statutes. I will not forget your word. My soul is consumed with longing for your rules at all times. That's verse 20. In verse 40, behold, I long for your precepts. In verse 47, I find my delight in your commandments, which I love. Jesus has a lesson for you about hunger and thirst. Have you grasped it? Do you hunger for the words of Jesus like that? 
What does your life say about your priorities? Are you hungry for the words of Jesus, for the words of God, and to what degree? Are you willing to give things up and sacrifice in order to feast on God's word? That's what these people did. The choice is there to be made. I'm either going to go home or I'm going to eat some physical food or I'm going to stay here and be hungry and be spiritually nourished. Which one am I going to sacrifice? What if we just talk about Sundays for a moment? Where does Sunday rank for you? Is it better than a day at the lake or a sporting event or some other thing you want to be at? How about time with Jesus and his word each day? Is it more valuable than a little bit more sleep? Getting that other thing done? That TV show? That movie? Is it more important than everything else that's actually like truly important too? And maybe it's worth asking, okay, as I look at my life, if something's being sacrificed, what is it? Am, Am I giving up time in God's word and time with God's people and time hearing his word preached? Am I sacrificing that for something else? Or am I actually sacrificing other things so that I can value and cherish the words of Jesus? I think we all want to take a lesson from these 4,000 people. You will never regret giving something up to hear the words of Jesus. Hebrews 11 verse 6 says, Whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. Lesson number six. Jesus has a lesson for you about ministry and evangelism. Uh, Jesus' ministry seems to be met here in, in in this chapter with a very positive response. He's in the Decapolis, and the crowd is hungry. They are receptive to his teaching and his ministry. But we should ask this question, where or when did the fruitful ministry that we see Jesus having here in chapter 8 in the Decapolis start? Did Jesus just show up in this region one day, the Decapolis, and everyone's just ready to listen, and they're, they're clamoring around Jesus, spending three days listening to his word just because he showed up? Like, what, what's going on here? What's the background? Jesus did not show up there unannounced. I want you to turn back with me to Mark chapter 5. Though Jesus spent Mark 1 to 7 predominantly in Jewish territory, there was one major exception to that. Um, If you've been with us in our study of Mark, do you remember what it was? Like the one time that he leaves Jewish territory and enters Gentile territory. Well, at the end of chapter 4, Jesus crossed the Sea of Galilee with his disciples. He got off the boat in chapter 5 in the general vicinity of the Decapolis. And there he encountered a man who was full of demons. And Jesus set him free. And of course, uh, the locals all come back. They see all this. There was the, the herd of pigs that went running over the hillside into the Sea of Galilee and drowned. And the locals see all this. They see the man sitting there and clothed in his right mind and they beg Jesus to leave. That's chapter 5, verse 17. And then in verses 18 and 19 of chapter 5, the man begged Jesus if he could be with him. Basically, Jesus, I want to be, be your 13th disciple. Can I hop in the boat and can I be with you? And Jesus wouldn't let him. Look at verses 19 and 20 of chapter 5. And he, Jesus, did not permit this former de- demoniac. Did not, he didn't permit him, but said to him, go home. 
to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. And in verse 20, we see how the man responds. And he went away and he began to proclaim, and where? The Decapolis. How much Jesus had done for him. And everyone marvels. This man is going all over the place. Decapolis means 10 cities. He's just telling everyone what Jesus did for him. Jesus did not show up in the Decapolis unannounced. Someone else told those people about Jesus first. Uh, and broadly speaking, the people group who had once begged Jesus not to remain with them, please go back to the other side of the lake because we don't want you here. You're destroying our economy. You're destroying our lives. Please go away. Broadly speaking, that same group of people has now willfully chosen to remain with Jesus for three days. And so Jesus has, I think, some lessons for you and I about ministry and evangelism that we need to ask, have we grasped these things? One of those would be that few things are more powerful than the testimony of God's grace in a life. The demoniac obviously had a great testimony. It was crazy. I want to encourage you, share your story of what God has done for you. My story's not like his. I, I wasn't full of like hundreds of demons. Yeah, but every story of God's grace is amazing. Every story of God's grace is remarkable. Tell other people what Jesus has done for you. And maybe consider this, that could it be that God could be using you to prepare the way for Jesus in the life of another person? We're not told how these people responded to uh, the demoniac, but we see them all sitting there at the feet of Jesus several weeks or months later. And maybe God's using you in some form of preparatory way in the lives of others for them to be receptive to the words of Jesus. And don't be surprised by how responsive the world can be. Even the people you least expect. The Jews would have looked at the Gentiles. Oh, they're like, they're beyond saving. Maybe they just need a chance to hear. Jesus finds a reception among the Gentiles that he simply had not seen among the Jews. These people are responding. Also, fruitful ministry often comes on the heels of difficult ministry. The demoniac was first assigned to a ministry task that was very much contrary to what he was hoping and what he had requested. He said, Jesus, can I come be with you? Jesus says, no. I want you to stay right here. All these people that just asked me to hop in my boat and go back over to the other side because they don't want me in their life, you go talk to them. You go tell them what I've done for you. He was sent to a people who were initially hard, and yet God was at work, much like farming or gardening. You do all this hard work on the front time, front end, and the, the harvest, the fruit, may not come till months and months later. Don't lose heart. Fruitful ministry often comes on the heels of difficult ministry. Also, joy comes with faithfulness and obedience. Uh, we don't know if the demoniac would have seen this crowd or not. But if he did, I'm sure he would have been overjoyed to see these people listening to Jesus. In some way, shape, or form, he got to be part of that process. And you and I have that same privilege. Finally, lesson number seven. Jesus has a lesson for you about the king, the kingdom of God, about the king and, the, and his kingdom. Uh, in Mark 1.15, all the way back at the beginning of the book, Jesus said, the kingdom of God is at hand. 
When Jesus arrived, the kingdom arrived too. It was present then, and yet it was still coming in another sense. And our text today gives us a glimpse of what that kingdom is like. The king just spread an excessive feast in Mark 8 before Jew and Gentile alike. It was uh, more than likely predominantly a Gentile crowd, but Jews would have been there too. And both are sitting there together, feasting on the bread from heaven and being nourished body and soul. They're feasting on the words of Jesus, the bread of life. The kingdom of God, what's it like, big picture? It's a kingdom of multi-ethnic feasting where people feast together in harmony at the hand of Jesus, the bread of life. And what do they find? They find that they are satisfied. In many ways, the feeding of the 4,000 prefigures an even greater feast miracle. Of what? Well, of Jews and Gentiles sitting together in the church with all the walls torn down between them and sitting around the Lord's table together. And then one day it ultimately points us forward to the day when all the redeemed of the Lord from every tribe, every nation, every tongue sit down together and they feast together in the Lord's eternal kingdom, just as Isaiah prophesied hundreds of years ago. Uh, Greg Hunter, our other elder, and I were recently in Toronto for a workshop for pastors, and there weren't, kind of seeing where everybody was at, it was maybe a group of 100 pastors, and there weren't very many of us from Western Canada, but we did meet a pastor and a group of men uh, from a Chinese church in Toronto, or Vancouver, rather, and they, as we got to know them, they told us that they actually have three worship services every Sunday. One of those services is in English, another is in Cantonese, and the third one's in Mandarin. And within moments of just getting to know these guys, uh, our hearts were immediately knit to them. These are our brothers. We love these guys. Why? Well, because we feast together from the hand of the same Lord and Savior. We have the same God, the same Jesus. And that makes us family, and we share a common bond, even if we just met each other a few moments ago. Jesus has a lesson for all of us about the king and the kingdom. Have you grasped it? Are you personally feasting on the bread of life and being satisfied? Are you satisfied in Jesus? Or are you looking elsewhere? And along with that, are you sharing that harmony and mutual satisfaction in Jesus with others who are different than you? Or to state it in a more probing way, is there another brother? Is there another sister? Is there somebody else in the family of God, in the kingdom of God, that you are not in harmony with? Jesus is giving us a picture here. My kingdom is not like that. My kingdom is a place where all of my people feast together in harmony and they're satisfied. Jesus has so many wonderful lessons that he wants you and I to learn. And hopefully by God's grace, much like the education system works, we're moving from grade to grade to grade. That in our walk with God, we just keep learning and growing and learning and growing. And by God's grace, may we do that together. Would you bow your head?